0: Welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Assel, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What's up, Todd? Hey, Corey. Your voice is a little hoarse. That's okay. Yes,
1: I'm, I'm hoarse today.
0: All right, so we're super excited today to welcome our special guest, Utah State Treasurer Marlo Oaks. Welcome, Marlo. Thank you. So glad you could be with us. Congratulations, first of all, on your blowout victory last month. You, you well deserve it. Great work. Congrats. Well, thank you. I noticed
2: um, that was not discussed on last week's podcast. I was a little disappointed <laughs> at that. <laughs> wow,
0: we did we two weeks it. ago, though. We were,
1: we were saving it. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> so, for uh, if you all recall, Marlo was appointed to this position by Governor Cox about a year and a half ago. Marlo spent his career in investment banking and investment management, including overseeing Intermountain Healthcare's multi-billion-dollar portfolio. He's uh, he really is ideal for the job. So, Mister Treasurer. Again, glad uh, you could be with us and uh, really excited that you can help us understand some important issues. But to get started, can you tell us what does the Utah Treasurer even do?
2: Uh, That's a great question. A lot of people don't know, so I'm happy to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Really, the Treasurer role is all about money. Um, But I don't do anything with budgets. I don't do anything with taxes other than invest tax money that uh, different uh, municipal entities uh, have. So really the role revolves around investment management and investment banking. Investment management is the management of the assets of the state. So uh, we have a large public treasurer's investment fund, that's about $30 billion. So we invest that money as well as other um, pools of assets. And then when the state uh, needs us to borrow money, if the state needs to borrow money for large projects typically, uh, then we'll go out to the market and borrow that money. That's the investment banking part uh, of the job. And then there's also unclaimed property. Uh, The uh, division underneath the treasurer's office. So that's where people uh, may have money that is in their name that ends up at a business, the business can't find them that money then uh, is sent into the treasurer's office Uh, that happens once a year. And so then we work to reunite that money with with uh, the the rightful owners. And so that that's also in the treasurer's office. And then we also do education around uh, financial uh, issues, the financial education Um, both in the schools and uh, we have a women's conference every year um, that we called women and the money Uh, and so you know all things kind of uh, investment and finance related um, and really revolving around the investment management and and the uh, borrowing of money for the state
0: excellent good stuff so you've been fighting a very important battle basically been the tip of the sword which is just really commendable against uh, this ESG that is uh, environmental, social, and governance rules pushed by the left. And some of the largest institutional investors, and, of course, credit rating uh, outlets are doing the same. So can you tell us, first of all, what is ESG and why should Utah's care about it at all?
2: Yeah. So ESG is really an outgrowth of values-based investment strategies. So socially responsible investing it was an earlier version of it. And that I, the idea is that as an investor, I will avoid certain uh, businesses that I don't want to participate in. So it typically was religious organizations um, and they might avoid firearms, tobacco, gambling, things of that nature. ESG then came along and, and really was an outgrowth of, of that. and um, it's it's really a political score. Um, the reason that I say that is that that entities are scored on issues that uh, have have a, a political uh, elements to them. So things that a, a state legislature, for example, might deal with. Um, so with ESG, it stands for environmental, social, governance, and the, uh, states are now being scored. Um, in the state of Utah, we were scored um, neutral, essentially. The, the main knock that we had was uh, around drought and that we're in a drought, which is absolutely true. Um, and I don't have any problem with them identifying drought as an issue because it would typically be an issue in, in a regular credit score. Um, which is the, the entities that score states because we borrow money. Nobody's investing in the state of Utah as a stockholder. We don't, we don't sell stock in the state of Utah. We sell bonds, right? And so um, as, as an issuer of bonds, we have a credit rating. And that credit rating is, is issued by credit rating agencies, S&P Global, Moody's, and Fitch. And they, they came out with ratings um, on our state. Uh, And we've never been rated below AAA, which is the highest credit rating uh, that any entity can have. We've never been rated below AAA, uh, but now they're creating separate ratings, separate scoring metrics um, that it's an ESG score. And so I've been saying for months that we have the best credit in the world, but it may not matter if we have an ESG score that then investors can point to and say, well, yeah, Utah has the best credit in the world, but they shouldn't be allowed to borrow money at the lowest rates in the marketplace because of their ESG score. And so that that ESG score is essentially a score of compliance to a political agenda, the environmental, social and governance, those factors that are applied to an entity that is is looking to borrow money or or access the capital markets in any way.
0: I mean, so essentially in a lot of ways, what we're saying is even though Utah pays back its bills, has a very strong tax revenue, tax base, very fiscally um, prudent over a long stretch of years. We may have our credit rating degraded because we don't necessarily adhere to the most, the, the, the climate change ideology, even whether you believe in climate change or not, the, the state isn't acting in certain ways that, uh, that the institutional investors want us to, that the credit ratings agencies want us to in order to sort of adhere to this ideology. Is that, is that accurate, am I?
2: Yeah, except I would say, you know, we could have our separate credit rating, that may not be touched. In other words, we could still have a AAA credit rating, but if we have a separate ESG rating, then investors can use that as a reason to withhold capital from us. Right. And so let me give you an example of how political this can be. In August, at the end of August, there was a, a women's volleyball game at BYU. And there was one person who was accused of hurling racial epithets at, at, at the opposing player. Now, let's just say that that was true and, and it was never shown to be true. But even if it were true, suddenly the entire state of Utah is a bunch of racists. So under the governance component uh, of s and Global's scoring system, it's it, one of the factors is adverse publicity resulting in reputational risk. That is a perfect example of adverse publicity resulting in reputational risk. It didn't matter whether it was true or not. If we had been borrowing money at the time, or even if, if, this, uh, if this system grows stronger in the United States, then investors can point to the state of Utah and say, well, they shouldn't be given money at the lowest rates because look at the, look at the racial, what, look at what they did at that volleyball game. It has nothing to do with our ability to repay investors' uh, traditional financial met- metrics. We are now punishing, potentially punishing borrowers of capital, users of capital in the capital markets for whatever factors we want to push uh, across society.
0: So, I mean, I think that's just totally outrageous. What What is it they need us to do in order to get a better score? So. For example, in that situation, Todd and I actually discussed that situation uh, at uh, the BYU volleyball match. And um, I think we established that many of the accusations didn't come to fruition. It just it didn't happen. And so even if well, it and, had though, no...
2: Does Oregon get punished? Does uh, Stanford get punished? Right. The state of California for a similar anti-Mormon right, uh, yeah. you know, Mormon kind of rhetoric, right? So what can we
0: do to repair? What is it that they expect from us?
2: Yeah, it, it's it, it can change, right? And that's part of the beauty of ESG is that that you can change whatever factors are at play to drive whatever agenda you want to drive. Yeah, um, and that's one of the reasons. Again, it's highly subjective, so you can you can change the factors, and then you can change what constitutes the right answer to those factors. Look at look at Tesla, what happened to Tesla and S&P, the S&P sustainability index or the ESG index, whatever it was, Tesla gets thrown out, right? Um, people, that became very clear uh, how subjective ESG was just based on that example alone.
1: Marlo, how, how long has ESG been like gaining momentum?
2: So it really started back in 2004. Um, that was one of the earliest publications out of the United Nations where um, that, that uh, phrase was used. Uh, but it's really been gaining momentum, I would say, um, in the last three years, with the last two years in particular, when this administration took over, because that's when banks signed on to what's called UNPRI, UN Principles of Responsible Investing. Before this administration took over, the biggest banks in the United States had not signed on to UNPRI, uh, which is uh, really kind of the climate change component, but it has to do with the uh, sustainability development goals uh, of the UN. Um, So once this administration took over, we saw a whole of government approach Um, that was really pushing the ESG agenda and continues to push the ESG agenda um, through all of the regulatory um, uh, entities. And I think the marketplace then embraced it much more strongly because there was, I I think, a a safety there from the administration that they knew that that there was not going to be any uh, negative implications from this administration. Uh, In fact, this administration was pushing it. And so um, that's when we really saw it take off.
0: Yeah. So to that point, uh, these political games are being put into law. So the Securities and Exchange Commission, remember, they they regulate uh, they regulate public companies. Well, the SEC just issued a rule for public comment that would require companies to disclose emissions from their operations and the energy they use much like the ESG rules you've just described, although the ESG rules you've described in some ways are voluntary, although there are ways to sort of compel uh, behavior like we were just talking about. But these SEC rules, they are onerous, they provide minimal value. But the greater issue is this so-called scope three that would require companies to report on emissions in their supply chains and product use, often Uh, Cover the bulk of the business's emissions. Emissions, I'm sorry. So in other words, emissions are not produced by the company itself, and not the result of activities from the company itself, or the assets owned or controlled by them, but by the suppliers. So like, what is the emissions life cycle of paper of a paper wholesaler where you buy paper for the copy machine? So uh, a corporation is now going to have to report on that. What's what's the emissions life cycle of like the beverage company that sells sodas for the break room? Well, you're going to have to look into all that and report all of that as well. You know, you want a cab ride across town or a flight uh, for company travel or the electricity that you get from the electric utility or your internet access? Well, the companies are now going to have to dive deep into all of these, uh, anything that they buy or purchase as part of their business, they're going, to, they're going to have to sort of back end, go through and figure out what's the admissions life cycle, every bit of this. I mean, it's completely nonsensical. I mean, if you want to purchase uniforms, for example, for your employees, you're gonna to have to know what the emissions life cycle of that shirt. Yes. So it's it's a level of absurdity that companies just can't, you know, realistically cannot comply with. And and to what end? I mean, I think right, I think, right. uh, Treasurer, you you I think you've laid it out very well. It's simply to satisfy what I would call a theological preoccupations, you know, of of this radical lobby. Um, I don't know if you've been following the SEC stuff or- Oh yes, any yes. You've
2: Yeah, so scope three is really um, uh, uh, your customers um, and, and the use of, or, or their carbon footprint, for example. So one of the biggest challenges that we're facing here with the SEC, um, BlackRock went to the SEC. BlackRock is the largest investment manager in the world. They have about $8 trillion in assets. Uh, They're a big proponent of of ESG, and they went to the SEC and they said, you are going to have a problem uh, if you do not uh, uh, create regulation for the private sector, because you will have companies going from the public sector, where all of these regulations are, to the private sector to get away from the regulations unless you impose the regulations in the private sector. So so, scope three emissions are one way of imposing uh, regulation in the private sector without really regulating it. So uh, um, in the agriculture space, uh, farmers, small farmers could be impacted by scope three emissions if they are, for example, supplying McDonald's or supplying another public entity uh, there suddenly the, the, that small farm; those emissions could show up in in some public company's emissions report, their scope three emissions, and then that public company may be putting pressure on that small farm to reduce emissions. Now we've seen in the Netherlands and Sri Lanka, the impact of trying to lower carbon emissions. In the Netherlands, we've we've had farmers under pressure to destroy their dairy herds. Um, to lower the carbon footprint in that country. Sri Lanka uh, went away from natural, or sorry, uh, uh, traditional fertilizers, chemical fertilizers, um, because of the carbon emissions, to organic fertilizers, and and food production fell by 40%. Prices rose by 80%, and there was massive civil unrest in that country. Now, uh, Sri Lanka had the highest ESG rating in the world. Um, because they were following these policies, and look where it led them. Uh, you can see what happens when, when large, uh, when you have central planning, essentially. Uh, centralized government or, or these uh, elites come in and say, mm-hmm. here's what you need to do to be successful. Uh, when you mess with markets, uh, it creates massive problems that don't usually end well, especially for poorer people. And we're seeing, you know, inflation is partly a function of of uh, what we're seeing in this country. Uh, inflation is partly a function of, of ESG as well.
0: That's really insightful. Thank you. And I'll, I'll add just to, just to put a cherry on top, the SEC, you know, would regulate public companies, but the Biden administration has also just issued a similar rule for government contractors, which actually reaches a lot farther than than folks would might realize, because we're not just talking about uh, big defense contractors. I mean, if you manufacture, you know, a, a uniform, then you're going to be captured. If you have any government contracts whatsoever, and there's a lot of companies that do. So, um, this new rule would apply to many, many mid-sized businesses and, and a lot of smaller businesses. And as you just described very well, like with the scope, with the the scope three, it'll reach back and capture a lot of small businesses. So,
2: yes. And it threatens those businesses significantly.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for your hard work on this. Thanks for being the tip of the sword. I mean, I, I, I'm i a huge fan and uh, I'm you out there. Todd, is there anything that we missed or you want to... Ruin? Well, I
1: <clears throat> I appreciate Marlo. I've known, knew him and his wife for several years before he was treasurer. And I, I'm, I'm really glad that we have him on the job and he's done a, a great job with... Uh, I, I, I don't think when he ran for the job you know, internally within the Republican Party, he realized he would be spending this much time on ESG. So no appreciate idea. Yeah. <laughs> Well, tell, tell your wife Elaine, I said hi. Thank you. It's good to Thanks. be with you.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Alpine School District in Utah County, family school district, my kids' school district, Alpine School District. Well, they've uh, removed 22 books from uh, from the libraries after they re- were reviewed by committees and deemed uh, pornographic or indecent. This action follows a bill passed by the state legislature earlier this year that you sponsored, Todd. So let's start. Uh, can you tell us about that bill?
1: Well, yeah, I was the Senate sponsor. So the the it was a House bill. So the, the primary sponsor was Representative Ken Ivory. And, you know, I was a little bit suspicious Um on this you know it sounds a little bit like book burning or something like that so i i told uh ken and and the people he was working with i said i want to see the books (laughs) i want to see the pages and they brought me books and most of the books they brought me were from the davis uh school district they they had you know from the libraries that's where all my kids went to school and they had the the labels on the 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 spines of the books and then they had um they had postmarked the pages, and when I started reading some of this material that was in, you know, school libraries in, in my county, um, I was shocked, and and Corey, I'm not real prudish. I mean, this was not R-rated stuff. This wasn't PG-13. This was clearly X-rated material, <laughs> um, and, you know, um, when I presented this bill on the Senate floor, I, I had some of the books there, and it's interesting because somebody made up a flyer with some of the excerpts from these books, and led research our our attorneys and the legislature said you you can't pass out that flyer That's it, it contains inappropriate material. So uh, so at, at the legislature when we're adults we, we can't say or or quote or pass out materials of what was actually in the schools um, for our children and. Um, you know, you know, not you know, some of this is high school, some of it's uh, uh, junior high, hopefully not elementary school, but but uh, and so this bill passed, it passed, you know, um, almost unanimously. I think you know, some of the democrats voted against it, but some of them voted for it. But l- let me just tell you, um, there's a couple arguments on both sides of this that I don't like. Number one, um, on the left, a lot of people are saying, oh, um, this is just being used to get rid of books about, uh, racism or about LGBT issues. Um, this has nothing to do with those issues, but what, what we find is there's a book that has LGBT, uh, main characters, and then it also has pornographic materials, you know, pornographic descriptions of sexual acts and things. And then if you target that book and they say, Oh, well, you hate gay people. I mean, but that's, what's going on on the left on the right. Um, there are some books that were on their list that that i personally read um and um i'm like no those aren't you know th- those are books that are dealing with topics of like um rape as a, you know the rape of children and things like that but they're not describing them in a purient sexual manner and so there were there's you know there was one or two books on there that i said hey i would let my high school kid read this book but i do think that should be a parental decision You know, not 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 necessarily you know a a school's decision, but I think just because something deals with rape or deals with sex, that's different than describing, you know, um, you know, a a sex act. And so, when I presented this uh, this bill on the floor of the Senate, there was a group of like fifth grade kids in the in the gallery watching us, and so I had to be very careful what I said. But so this is what I said, and I'll stick by this. I said. Some of what I read in these books would make Monica Lewinsky blush. <laughs> and, and, I, and I'll stand by that. So. And
0: your interns are like, who's that? <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's, that's good and a good insight there too. So but for my part, I mean, let me state, first of all, categorically that I do not believe that any book or any content should be banned from print or possession in America, period. None <laughs> whatsoever. I believe very strongly in the First Amendment, freedom of speech, everyone should be able to think and write and publish anything and everything they want, and I think that all content should be available for access and purchase in our open society. What we're saying here is that there are time, place, and manner restrictions. Any and all of what's ever been written or said is fair game for a college course, certainly for a college library, even for the city library. But not everything that's appropriate for adults is appropriate for children. This is just so obvious as to be basically a truism. I mean, so I think what we have here with the Alpine School District is it's not a ban. Students can have the books. They can read the books. Many of the books are available in our local library, the city library, the county library, and all of them, of course, are available online. What we're saying is that grade school libraries don't need to house sexually explicit material. I mean, didn't this used to be common sense? But uh, but now, because some of the books involve uh, LGBT, as you described very well, somehow it's a war on them. I think that's nonsense. Um, The fact that pornography, I also want to push back on this other argument, the fact that uh, pornography is available on any kid's phone is not an argument with any merit. You know, just uh, just because a kid can have access to heroin out there, there's no reason to make it uh, easier in school. And obviously, any book or content found in a school library is presumed to be appropriate. And rightly so.
1: Let's take that argument. So so some kids are using drugs. So should we have drugs available in the school cafeteria? Because yeah, some kids are using, right. that's the argument. You know, oh, yeah. well, we should just have them there at school because they're going to get them anyway. No, nobody, nobody with a straight face would argue that.
0: 100%. And I think the parents and students should feel confident that material in a school library is age appropriate. And we just don't need sex books for middle schoolers or high schoolers for that matter, matter. And I, I haven't gone through all the books. Uh, so I'm, I'm really glad that you have. So I'm not going to say that all 22 are exactly the ones that should be banned, but I have seen some of them and some of them are graphic novels as in pictures of sexual acts. Why in the world do we think that's appropriate for children?
1: Yeah, and, and I'll echo what you said. I think we're in 100% agreement, but I'll just say this. If a parent wants their child, I'm, I'm going to go back to the words and not to the pictures or the drawings. If you want your minor child to read um, two or three pages of detailed description of sexual acts like oral sex, <laughs> you're welcome to buy them that book. You're welcome to read that book with them. But, but you're not welcome to insist that the taxpayers – buy that book and put it in your school library. And that's what we're talking about here.
0: Yeah, yeah, well said. Utah added over 61,000 residents from July last year to July this year. According to a new study by the Gardner Institute at the University of Utah, 62% of the new residents or nearly 40,000 came from in-migration. You know, all those folks coming from out of state. So people from out of state moving into Utah, only about 38% of Utah's growth came from natural increase, which is essentially births minus deaths. So apparently this is the lowest natural increase since 1975. We're, you know, having fewer kids. Uh, On the other hand, net migration increased to uh, over 38,000 in 2022. That's the highest level in state history. And that accounts for people moving out as well. So I think one of the main main findings is a lot more people are moving in than are moving out. Uh, Iron County experienced the fastest growth on a percentage yes. basis, but Utah County really leads in the most residents. Nearly 24,000 people between July 2021 and 2020, uh, July 22 were added, and that's uh, more than double Salt Lake County, which added about 10,000. So Daggett was the only county in Utah to lose people, but that was only six people. So basically, you know, stayed the same. Anyway, uh, Utah County continues to lead. I think that's because, let me just say, I think it's a wonderful place to raise a family. My wife and I, we deliberately chose to live in Utah County when we came back a couple years ago. I think that's why, you know, clearly why Suzanne Harrison's seat was folded and a new seat was created in Eagle Mountain, because that's just where the growth is. But, uh, Todd, there's lots of different different opinions about whether growth is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, Where do you come down?
1: Well, you know, there's not a lot we can do about it, you know, unless we're going to post the Utah National Guard on the I-15 border and the, you know, the I-80 border and start checking IDs. (laughs) You know, it's a free country, so people can live and move to where they want to. Um, Now, I will say, um, number one, the growth last year was higher than projected or predicted. Uh, But number two, we've been saying, Uh, Well, I've been hearing for five or six years that by 2050, we're going to be a state of five or six million people. So, you know, you don't grow all that in one year. So, you know, you're going to see this growth uh, probably continue. So (laughs) so it doesn't surprise me that the Cedar City area is the fastest growing area in the state because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of people there relatively. So if they add 20,000 or 10,000, that's a huge percentage um daggett county you said it's only six people that that might be two or three percent of the population there Corey. (laughs) but um utah county we know over the next 30 years most of the growth in the state is going to happen in utah county so so get used to it um it's you know utah county is probably going to add you know uh over a half million people if not if not three quarters of a million people you know in the next 30 years and so um you know it's going to be um Salt Lake part two down there before you know it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is uh, kind of eye popping when you think about it. But So for my part, you know, I returned to Utah from out of state. I grew up here, of course, grew up in West Valley City, um, lived in in the D.C. area for quite a while and came back during when COVID hit. I mean, I understand why people are coming or coming back. Uh, There's just so much to love about the state. And obviously, it's hard for me to criticize those who want to move here. Um, but I mean, obviously, growth does create challenges. I, I live in Lehigh and and the growth is just really almost exponential and the infrastructure is just trying to keep up. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think I can go, you know, uh, half a block without running into about five, you know, big construction trucks.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned coming back because even though that in-migration number was high, I think if if you dug into it, you would find... A lot of that is people that were born and raised in Utah who moved out of state to take jobs, and then they're coming back either to transfer jobs or to retire. Um, Mike, I mean, everyone thinks that all of these liberals from California are invading Utah. Uh, in my, you know, in my experience and from the data I've seen, it's mostly Utah people coming back to Utah. Now they're coming back with their wife and their kids, you know, but they're still coming back to Utah
0: or their husband and or they're coming husband. and many of them are coming from California. It's just yeah. that they,
1: they yeah, but, but they have here. Utah ties is all I'm saying. Yeah. That's A right. lot of, not all of them, but I think the majority.
0: Cool. All right. I think that's all the time we got.
1: All right. Uh, we're going to take probably next week off. I think we decided.
0: Yeah. Uh, programming note.
1: Yeah. So we'll see you maybe in two weeks.
0: Okay. See you in two Happy weeks. Thanks,
1: Thanks. Bye-bye. Yep.